right, guys. We are our last session. And we're going to be back again in Romans 1. And tonight we're going to be going through verses 8 through 17. So this is the same section that you guys went through uh, this afternoon or this morning. I guess it was kind of in the middle. Um, so we're going to kind of go through probably a lot of the things that you um, already were talking about when you were talking through your um, interpretation and application sections. But um, first of all, I'm just going to read the section before we get started. Actually, you know what, before we even get started with that, I'm going to pray for us, okay? So Lord, thank you so much for um, this evening again. Lord, I just am overwhelmed with how um, just present you have felt this weekend and how many good conversations I've been a part of and I've heard about. Lord, I just am thankful for these ladies and just for the ability to just come and spend time with them. Lord, I, I pray for our session tonight. Lord, I pray that you will just guide my words uh, use me to communicate what you need to communicate. And Lord, I pray that the ladies will be able to just um, receive it and understand it um, and that it will touch their hearts. And Lord, I just, I pray that this is not this whole weekend, that it's not just about us learning um, facts and figures and how-to methods and all of this, but that it will change our hearts and that it will um, be used by you in the coming weeks as we are um, living life and reading scripture and talking with our friends and our family and our kids and whoever it may be. Lord, I just pray that this will be a time that you can shape our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me read Romans 1, 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. All right, so what we're gonna do tonight is we're literally just gonna work our way verse by verse through this section. And we're kinda just gonna talk about what it means, what he is saying, and uh, we're not gonna get as much into the application side of it, but you know, you guys can, Talk amongst yourselves at the end about more of the application, okay? So, start out. Uh, this first section is kind of verses 8 through 12, and I kind of grouped them all under the heading here of how we can relate to other believers, okay? So this is Paul talking, like we said before, he's talking to the Romans, and he is kind of... Um, 
talking about them and how you can, it's a, this is kind of a little bit of an application. This is also how you could take this and how you're going to interact with other believers. So the first one he mentions here in verse 8 is first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he is thankful for them, right? He is giving thanks for the advancement of the gospel that they have been able to do, right? Because he's not just saying, like, I'm just really grateful that you guys are part of the church, which is fine. He could be thankful they're there, but he gives us a very specific reason. I'm thankful to God through Jesus Christ because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So you can imagine Rome is at this time in history is kind of the biggest city in the world, if you will. And so the church in Rome in the Christian community would be well known, right? Um, you can also imagine that I'm sure you all have heard the stories of the persecution that was happening in Rome at this time, right? So this is a, while he's writing this, it's a little before, it's kind of on the early parts of the persecution. It's not as bad as it's going to get by no means. It's going to get way worse in Rome for the Christian, but there still is a lot of persecution that's happening. So you can imagine Paul writing this thinking, you know, I'm hearing all of these stories. I'm hearing all of this, you know, you're hearing about your faith. Probably some of that is coming from, I'm hearing that some of you are dying for your faith, right? He's not saying that here, but you can kind of imagine that that is happening because historically we know that that is happening, the persecution of these people. Um, and that those stories, that happens even today, right? When you have a story of a persecuted Christian, there is power behind that, right? Because this person believed so much. Their faith was so strong. They were willing to die for it. And that has, you know, reverberations, is that the right word? Uh, around the entire world, right? And so you can imagine... It probably wasn't going to the whole world, but for them, the Roman Empire was kind of the whole world. And so it's kind of rippling through the Roman Empire, the, the stories of the Roman church. Okay, so then let's move on to verse 9 and 10. So he um, says, for God is my witness. And so he has a qualifier here, for God is my witness. And he's talking about God. Whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. So he's just clarifying. For God is my witness. This is who God is, right? <laughs> um, that, I, that, without, uh, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So uh, there's this uh, uh, thought of praying without ceasing, right? And Paul uses this numerous times. I put another one up here, 1 Thessalonians 5. He has the same phrase. He's praying without ceasing. And what he is intending here is not that you are literally going to lock yourself in a closet and you're just going to pray from now until Jesus comes, right? It's more about the, the, the attitude of your life, you know, that you are living in a state, you're approaching life, always being in communion with God, right? That you are always living in this prayer, thanksgiving, supplication, rejoicing, all these things where it's just your mind goes there immediately, right? Because it's not a, because, and we know this because he gives us plenty of other like commands to do. It's not just like pray always 
and he doesn't tell us anything else to do. There's plenty of other things we're told we're to do in scripture. So this is to be a part of all of that. It's more of this attitude toward it. And so what is the prayer that he has? He's praying that he gets to go there, right? Paul wants to go visit the church in Rome. He has expressed that numerous times now. We're going to see it again in just a little bit. Uh, he wants to go. So that's what he's telling them. He's like, I'm praying for you, and I'm also praying that the Lord is going to make a way for me to get to see you. Right? So then we move on to verses 11 and 12. Uh, for I long to see that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So he wants to be mutually encouraged with the Romans. So we don't really know exactly what the spiritual gift is that he wants to impart to them. Most people that I've read said it's more than likely some sort of message he wants to give them, some sort of specific you know, uh, encouragement or commendation or something. But whatever it is, whatever he wants to impart to them as an apostle— it is going to be mutually beneficial, mutually encouraging to both of them. This is not Paul saying, oh, well, I'm Paul, so I'm going to just show up. At, I need to come to Rome so I can encourage all of you. He's saying, no, you will be just as much of a encouragement to me as I will to you. And that for us is the same, right? Like being here this weekend, you have encouraged me just as much as I probably have maybe have encouraged you. Because it's in the conversations, just the, the showing up, the being here, like just living life together is such an encouragement to be around other believers. And so Paul is acknowledging that and saying, it's not just me, the Apostle Paul coming, it's you will be to me as well. So then he moves on and he kind of goes even further in this like intent that he wants to come visit them, right? So we're in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware. So like, just please know, that's what he's saying. Please know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he's saying, I think uh, some of the conversations I've been in this weekend, there's been this thought that like there's something wrong that is happening that's keeping him there. And that's really not, from what I've read, is not really the intention. He's just saying, like, you know, I for a long time now I've wanted to come see you, and just life has happened, right? He's kind of acknowledging this uh, providential whatever is keeping him away from Rome. And it's, so it's, it's not necessarily, like, a bigger thing than that. Like, it's, you know, yes, part of it was he was persecuted in different places. He's been on these... He's on his third missionary journey right now. It takes a long time to travel between place to place. And we all know this, right? Like, we know this in our own lives. It's not just, you know, 57 AD where it's hard to get stuff to happen in life. You know, we, I bet every person in this room has something that they have intended to do, maybe even for years, and it just doesn't happen, right? So it's, you know, he is saying, I've wanted to do this. But this is the perfect example of this God-honoring prayer, right? Just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean he stops praying for it. And he is, at the same time that he's asking for it, he is completely content with not being there, right? He's not saying, you don't see anywhere in here that he's like, well, and, you know, that he's blaming God for why it didn't happen or whatever. No, he's just saying, like, I, I still really want to come. And I'm going to keep praying for it. And if it doesn't happen, 
then that's the Lord's will. You know, like he's completely content with what the Lord's will is going to be and at the same time still asking for it and having like a confidence that he can still ask it. So it's just a good example that we can keep praying. Now, if the Lord has made it abundantly clear that what you're asking for is uh, either sinful or like, you know, whatever, you you should stop praying for that, you know. <laughs> but if he has not made it abundantly clear, keep asking, keep talking to him in confidence. So then keeping in verse 13, it says, um, find my place. So he's like, now I want to come to you um, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So this word harvest here, you can see there, I have no idea how you say this word, but the Greek word here that is translated harvest in other spots in scripture is translated fruit. Okay, so this, um, and I put a couple other places this word is used, Philippians 4 and John 4. So this, you know, I think you could think of this as this is definitely like a, a reaping of a harvest of salvation, right? But there's also a sense that it is just the fruit of this church, right? He wants, he's hearing these things, that this church is proclaiming the gospel. They are living uh, out their faith. They are having a, a re- or not a reward, a um, harvest. And he wants to be a part of it, right? We all know this. Like if you hear somebody and they're talking about just the fruit that they're having in their life. It's exciting. You want to be a part of it. And he is saying, I want to come. I want to be with you. I want to come and join you in this harvest that you're participating in, as well as all the other Gentiles, right? He's, as, as he's writing this, he is in Corinth on his missionary journey, having a harvest with lots of Gentile churches and gentile communities right so he is um just kind of being excited wants to go and encourage them in what they're the fruit that they are already producing in their church so this isn't necessarily a it could be some of the people in his church or in this church maybe aren't saved but it's not like he's saying everyone in your church isn't saved and i need to come harvest you all (laughs) that's not really what he is saying here in or what he's meaning. Um, all right, so this next section is all about Paul's gospel obligation. So we're in verse 14. Um, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So Paul is, he is an apostle, but he is specifically the apostle to the Gentiles. He calls himself this. Numerous times you'll see it later in Romans in chapter 11, verse 13. He calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. When he was commissioned, when he was called to be an apostle, he was commissioned to go to the Gentiles, to preach to the Gentiles. That doesn't mean he can't preach to the Jews, because obviously he is, you know, in this book. But he calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he, and he, you can see he has a strong sense of duty here. He is saying, I am under obligation. Now, we should not read that as, I have to do this, and I'm like begrudgingly 
doing this thing. He is joyfully doing it. You see, there's nowhere in here where it's this like trudgery. He is joyfully serving his duty here, but it is still this like obligation to him. He is so committed to it that he must do it. And so when it talks here about the Greeks and the barbarians, so at this time in the uh, Greco-Roman culture, they considered the Greeks to be like the sophisticated, wise, uh, highly educated people. And everyone who was not Greek was a barbarian and they were not wise, they were not smart, they were foolish, right? So he is kind of using these terms from the culture to kind of say, I am there to preach the gospel, and I'm under obligation to preach it to everyone, to the smart people and the dumb people, right? To the foolish people and the wise people, because while the culture would see these Greeks and barbarian as God, and so Paul does not, right? There is no distinction between these two groups of people as far as the gospel is concerned. So he is kind of using this as a, um, as a like, you know, to illustrate like the whole gambit, you know? He's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it to the Greeks, to the super smart, you know, philosophers over there, and to the people over here like banging rocks together, you know? I'm doing it to all of them and everybody in between, okay? Um, So then we get to verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So this was a question that came up numerous times, a couple, not numerous, there's only four tables, a couple times on the questions from last night. So if he is writing this letter to the church, why is he so eager to preach the gospel to people who are already saved? Like why, why do they need the gospel? And this is kind of, because we're about to launch into Paul's thesis, and this is the core of who Paul is. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is the cornerstone of all believers' lives, right? If you are in Christ, the gospel is everything. And you need that every day, every hour. You need to be reminded because we need to be told it's not your works, it's not you, it's not you. It's all God. It's faith. It's Christ. It's Christ's works. Christ died for you. And you need that over and over again. So Paul is kind of right before he launches into this thesis statement, he is just, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Like, in the same way that I am eager to preach it to you guys. Like, the gospel is my favorite thing to talk about (laughs) because it is the cornerstone of my life. It is, if you are in Christ, it should be the thing about you that people, when they think of you, I mean, when they think of you, they're thinking, man, she loves the gospel. Like, if that, if I ever have somebody think that of me, oh, that's what I want, right? Like, I want someone to think of me and think, she loves the Lord, she loves the gospel. Okay? So, that brings us to Paul's thesis here in verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is written, the righteousness or the righteous shall live by faith. So we're kind of just going to walk through this. So it kind of, he very much has a flow here. Okay? 
So from verse 15, why is he eager to preach the gospel? For I am not ashamed of it. You know, he's like, he's like, I'm not ashamed to preach this gospel to you. I am eager to come. So what would be some reasons he would be ashamed? Or just people in general, us, people in the world, you know, think about the context he's writing in for the Jews. The gospel is foolishness because there's all these laws. You're saying, I don't have to do any of these laws? Like, no, that's, that's foolishness, right? God's given us these laws, and you're telling me I don't have to do any of these? And then for the Gentiles over here, they're saying, you know, nah, do whatever you want. Why would I live a, like a restricted life with the gospel, right? So from both sides, it's foolishness. Right? It only makes sense to those of us in the gospel who, who Christ has opened their eyes. And so this is our world as well, right? Like we have the people who are on both sides telling us like the gospel is not strict enough. And then we have over here where the gospel is too strict, you know, and it's like it's foolishness to all of them. But Paul is saying, I am eager to preach it because for me, I am not ashamed of it and I want it to go. So why is he not ashamed? For... It, the gospel, is the power of God. Like, that is, that, the gospel, is the power of God. Well, what is it powerful for? It's powerful for salvation. Who is it saving? It's saving to everyone who believes to the Gentile, or to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, a.k.a. Gentile. So, and if you look at these, um, they can kind of break them down as to everyone so it's universal to everyone who believes, so it's conditional, to the Jew first and also the Greek. It's also historical. Right? He's, remember, these people are they're Jewish. They're, they're concerned about the historical narrative. So he's tying it back because the Jews were first in the Old Testament, and now the Greeks, the Gentiles, are able to be saved as well. So he is saying it is for everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Gentile. All right, so why is the power, why is the gospel powerful to save these people? It keeps going. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay? So the next question is, well then what is the righteousness of God that's being revealed? So uh, this phrase, righteousness of God, is used a couple times, uh, it's numerous times, but this are the two that I was looking at. It's um, Isaiah 46, 13, and Micah 7, 18 to 20. And in both of these contexts, it's talking about this righteousness of God is being used to save his people without breaking his characteristics, right? Because God has set this standard and said, you must meet this standard. Right? You have to basically, you have to be perfect. When he put out the Mosaic Law, he said you must meet the law 100% to be saved. And obviously, none of us can do that, right? None of the Israelites could do that. No one on earth could do that. So God gave his son as a propitiation, which is a uh, like payment with blood. Um, that satisfied the wrath of God. Okay, so when you, when he gives his, or when he declares us righteous and forgives us of our sins, he's not just saying, you know what, Sophie, 
love you so much. I'm just going to let it go. You're going to sneak on in, right? No. He is saying Christ died. Christ lived a perfect life. The what I couldn't died. And that righteous life was transferred to Sophie. And so now when God looks at her, he doesn't see her and her sinfulness. He sees Christ's righteousness. So he is able to save and maintain his perfect standard and his characteristics. Because if God just came in and was like, you know what? I'm just going to give these few, forgive these few people. He's no longer just, right? Because we don't deserve that. So he can't just come in and forgive us. The payment has to be made somewhere. And Christ is the one who made that payment. So when the Father justifies, it is by faith alone that you receive your salvation. Okay? So that is what Paul is talking about here. That when he's saying the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, he's talking about Christ is revealed in the gospel as the way we are saved by faith alone. And so the next phrase is from faith for faith. So when you believe, you do not make a choice just in your unbelief and go, you know what? I think I'm going to be saved today, right? No. God gives you the faith. So it's from faith for faith. So you have faith because God gave you the faith. Right? So it's a beautiful circle there, right? And it has nothing to do with us. It's all God doing it. God gives you faith so that you can have faith. Which means that it is we. So this is basically, when you boil it all down, this is our ultimate kind of uh, thesis statement. If you want just like a little thesis statement here. We are justified by faith alone. That is what this entire book is about. And the fancy way to say that is chapter, verse 16 and 17. But ultimately it's we are saved by faith alone. And then he ends it with reinforcement from the Old Testament. So he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this comes from Habakkuk 2.4. I'm sure that's a book you all have studied like a ton, right? I don't think, until I st started studying this, I don't think I've ever read Habakkuk, to be honest. <laughs> but Habakkuk, at this point, uh, when Habakkuk is being written, it is while the, um, I don't, I think it's while the Israelites are in captivity with Babylon, so they've been, they're in exile. And so Habakkuk, at this point, is just like, he doesn't understand how a good God could use Babylon to punish his own people. This evil nation is punishing God's people. And um, Habakkuk is finding it difficult to reconcile God's character with his actions. He's like, if you are a good God, why is this happening? Right? And God reveals to him that, or reminds him that evil isn't going to prosper. Right? The people are being punished because they broke the covenant that they promised with God. They promised in the Mosaic Covenant that they would follow his law, and they have broken that, right? And so they are being punished, but ultimately, God will prosper because he is orchestrating all of history, right? And you will get to a point, and so he's kind of reminding his people that you're going to get to this point where a Savior is going to come. And ultimately, Christ is going to come and live that sinless life and die and fulfill all of the covenants, all of the promises, all of the things we can't do, he, would, he will come and he will restore that. 
and fulfill all of that. So when you're talking about through faith alone, these people are in captivity. All hope looks bleak, right? Because they're like, we're supposed to have a a king on the throne. We're supposed to have like the land in Israel. We're supposed to have all these things and we have nothing, right? We are like enslaved in Babylon. And he's saying, you have to have faith. You have to have faith and the righteous shall live by faith. So he's not saying that you are just going to be so good, you're going to be such a righteous person, that you're going to get to live by faith. And he's saying life is going to suck sometimes, and you are going to live by faith, though, because you are, have been made righteous by God. So it's not like that you're going to make yourself righteous through your faith. It's you are righteous, so you get to live by faith. Right? So... Um, So yeah, so that is our thesis statement. You are saved by faith alone. That's it. And so the whole rest of this book, all of Romans, is now Paul going into the more nitty gritty of what exactly does that mean? What is exactly, you know, what are your what are your objections? Let me answer those. What are your issues with it? Like, let's go through all of this. And honestly, that's why I'm so excited to study this this fall because I think a lot of these objections, they may not look exactly the way that they're worded here, but they're the same objections that we have in our life today, right? Because I didn't say that, I don't think I said this earlier, but I know I was talking about Paul being a Pharisee and, you know, we we don't actually have Pharisees, but we do have people who grew up, especially grew up here in the South, and we are really good at following rules, right? Like, I'm real, like me personally, I'm really good at it. <laughs> I'm really good at coming across like, I got all this together, right? And I'm very much a Pharisee. So all of this is very applicable to me. And my guess is it's applicable to you too, right? <laughs> because, you know, it might have been a couple thousand years, but people are still people. And sin is still sin. And the objections, the issues, the things they're talking about in Romans are the exact same things we need to hear today. So, um, I think that's all I got. Just make sure there's no more slides. So, thank you guys for staying, for sticking it out with me. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, if you have any questions, I'd love to talk about anything. um, And, yeah, let me pray for us. And then we'll we'll get going with our with our rest of our night. Okay, dear Lord, thank you so much for um, this evening, our time together. Lord, I just um, once again just just echo how grateful I am for this weekend and for our time together. Lord, I just pray that this this thesis statement, this core message that we are saved by faith alone in you and your gospel, and I just pray that that just resonates in our hearts, Lord, and if there is anyone here that this is the first time they're hearing it, Lord, I pray that you will just break their heart and that you will help it to penetrate and to be what they need to hear, Lord. I pray that um, we will just have good conversations tonight and that we can just glorify you um, as we finish out this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.